0: I mean to think of, of stars as, as an obvious part of movie-making, but they're not. They're, the creation of the star and the star image is part of the industrialization of film.
1: Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of movie-land comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebbert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Movie stars are not just pretty faces. In this episode, we talk to two authors of new books that take a new look at the very good looking. Jillian Welch on Tyrone Power, and Kathleen Spaltrow on Mary Astor. Plus, meet a new site devoted to writing, art, and more about classic Hollywood by women. Be sure you keep up with everything happening in the world of the bad and the beautiful. Subscribe to Nitroville Radio at the podcast app of your choice. And if you're feeling especially charming, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, Gorgeous. In my other life, I'm a writer on food, and anybody trying to eke out a living on freelancing will tell you. It's a hard life, and if you can afford it, the temptation to fire the editors and just write about what you want for readers directly is pretty irresistible. I mean, that's how people wind up starting podcasts. Kate Gabriel, who creates vintage movie-themed art in various forms, I have a couple of her Christmas ornaments, and Jill Blake, who's written for things like TCM and Filmstruck, are among a group of women who've launched the Classic Film Collective, a new reader-supported site devoted to writing, art, songs, and who knows what else, by women about classic cinema.
2: Hi, um, I'm Kate Gabrielle, and um, I'm a freelance illustrator who really likes classic movies.
3: And I'm Jill Blake, and I'm a freelance writer and a podcast host and do a little bit of dabble in all different areas, but and I'm also a...
1: Classic film enthusiast. Well, tell me about the Classic Film Collective.
2: Is I uh, a few months ago was just thinking um, how a lot of people who are trying to do freelance work right now are all sort of going it alone. Everybody sort of starts their own Patreon or they have their own um, newsletter, like a subscription-based newsletter, things like that, and that it can be really difficult to get everybody who loves sort of the same um topic to support all of these individual creators um individually um you know to be it's it's almost like uh where everyone used to say if you paid for a la carte service for cable you know that you'd end up having um you'd be paying individually for all these different channels which actually is how streaming services (laughs) ended up but um (laughs) Uh, That
1: future is now. (laughs) Yeah, that's right now.
2: Um, But I thought it would be really fun to have one place where a bunch of us could sort of come together and people could subscribe and get all this content in one place from a bunch of different um, freelance, uh, you know, creative people. Uh, We have writers, artists, uh, people who make video. I have um, a friend who's doing a song every month that's inspired by classic movies. Uh, Someone's doing a short story. We have someone doing poetry. It's so you get um, a ton of variety and you get to be supporting people who are creative and can act this, this gives them the ability to actually hopefully at some point be making some income, um, you know, by being creative, you know, it's, Sometimes being creative doesn't pay the bills. So
1: I've heard that.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So tell me, I mean, we did you all know each other? The people that are on this, I should say, the women who are on this site now, or did you just know each other in a virtual way, or how'd that work?
2: Um, well, I I know everybody. Um, I only I only picked people that I already knew, <laughs> um, and I've think that I've met everybody in person, except maybe one person um I've I've met Jill at the fest the TCM yep. Film Festival okay.
3: yep yeah I think most of us know each other uh, have have at least um interacted um online for years but I mean I've I've met Kate before many times um Nikki I've gone on on a weekend to get away with Nikki um, and Raquel Stetcher. Nikki. Yeah. Raquel's been in my home and we've, and we've known each other for years. Mariah Gates, um, again, we've known each other for years, um, have spent a lot of time. She's been, you know, over to my house and played with my kid. And so we all have, um, you know, a, a common interest in, in classic film and, in. in pop culture. And so many of us have taken those uh, online relationships and friendships into the real world. And we are very much a part of each other's lives. So this is kind of a very fun and personal thing. I'm very honored to be a part of this with some really, really
1: great women. I go to some of the festivals and my son comes with me and he likes to say that he's the youngest person who attends the festivals, and I'm the <laughs> second youngest. Uh, you know, it tends to kind of draw, you know, old movies tend to draw that late show, show crowd. But that's one of the things that's been interesting is the development of this audience on Twitter and places like that, mm-hmm. uh, particularly younger women. And I say younger as in under 60, which I think yeah. <laughs> you know kind, <laughs> kind of defines this, the festival crowd. Tell me about that, that kind of culture on Twitter. Oh, gosh. You know, I want to say that
3: what's funny is, you know, the classic film community was very much there online in the form of, uh, you know, blogs and and in the live journal days and those kinds of things. And I always feel like a lot of it trended younger. There were, uh, you know, I'm 41 um, and, uh, you know, a lot of, when I was first kind of blogging and doing that in the kind of the early to mid 2000s, um, at the time I was, I was in my, uh, twenties then late twenties. And I was still the oldest person (laughs) in that group. There was a lot of people that were in there that were teenagers that were writing some of the, the, the great things on, um, classic film. And in the Twitter world, um, I feel like, I've seen the, and I'm sure Kate can, can, um, attest to this too. I've seen some good things happen from having this community on Twitter. I feel like it's expanded. It's brought more people in. Mm -hmm. It's not as, um, I mean, we still can be a very difficult bunch of people, but I feel like it's also opened up to a new demographic, I feel like, um, not only diversity in age, but diversity in, uh, race. Um, I feel like we're seeing more and more uh, different kinds of people from different backgrounds, from different generations come together and share this love. So I, I think Twitter in a lot of ways has opened, opened that up. And it's, a a very I love the community (laughs) later today I may be like dang it (laughs) you know what are you guys doing but you know I'd say 87% of the time the Twitter uh, classic film community is is pretty great
2: (laughs) I completely agree
1: (laughs) you know there's kind of a film bro Twitter thing that can be somewhat obnoxious but i mm-hmm. feel it doesn't reach into the classic film world that much i mean not know, as sometimes uh, sometimes <laughs> i don't know. yeah tell me what your experiences are
3: you know i get a lot of reply guys you know um well actually a yeah. lot of well actuallys and i i i will say that the majority is okay and i think the majority are well intentioned but i will never forget it was like maybe three years ago I tweeted out just some, I'm a big Tashira Mifuni fan. And I had tweeted something out about Mifuni that wasn't on any specific day. It was just a random day that I just felt like tweeting out a picture of Tashira Mifuni. I'm entitled to do this. (laughs) And uh, this guy, you know, as, as the kids say, pops into my mentions and uh, he's like, well, Tashira Mafuni's birthday is on April 1st. Oh, my God. Like, why are you posting this? His birthday is not today. So it's like, yes, I do know his birthday is on April 1st. Thank you, sir. Um, but it, it was like, there's a lot. There's sometimes gatekeeping that happens. Or, um, or like, um, instead of saying, how did you, you know, have you seen this movie? the assumption that I haven't seen the movie. So right. yes. let me proceed to tell you about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that happens that's, a lot. That's my
2: biggest pet peeve. I, yeah, that That's what happens to me the most. And I feel like people probably mean well, but um, I so often, especially for me, it happens a lot with Dirk Bogard where <laughs> I'll, I'll post a picture of Dirk Bogard or something. And I inevitably get someone who's like, you need to see victim
1: and <laughs> that was just and, the one i was thinking of.
2: and and it's like look i own dirk bogardcom i've seen my <laughs> <one.
3: laughs> Kate has a has a very impressive like full back tattoo yeah. of dirt burger i'm just yeah. kidding
1: <laughs> so yeah. was did this kind of is that kind of why it's it's focused on women contributors as opposed to just those are all my friends
2: um i mean partially because there's definitely there's um men who uh i really love their writing and at first when i was drawing up my list of people i was thinking of including i have to just give a shout out to andy ross because i love him Mm -hmm. and he was when i was deciding whether or not to include guys he he was the one where i kept going like oh but if i make it women only then i can't include andy yeah (laughs) Andy's Um, great I love him and but but at the end of the day I just thought like it would be really great to have this like collective of just women and you know a lot like you said about film bros like a lot of film twitter can be very male centric and Mm -hmm. I liked the idea of this being a place where all the voices are women and it's like us bringing our perspective to classic films which also a lot of times like I I I love a good sexist 1960s comedy. (laughs) um,
0: Right,
3: right.
2: You know, a lot of the gender politics in old movies can be complicated. And I like the idea that all of us approaching our posts are coming from the perspective of, you know, what it's like to watch these movies as a woman. Um, So I, I... Thought I gave it a lot of thought, but I am <laughs> I I like where we ended up.
1: Well, I look forward to your piece on how to murder your wife then. <laughs> yeah. So what what are your plans editorially for this? I mean, it sounds like they're wide open, but do you have specific goals that you want to cover?
2: Honestly, every every single person in the collective uh, is just take they can take their own path with what they want to cover. So there's no set goal for the entire group. Um, it's your own prerogative to decide you know if you want to do a whole series for a year on some particular topic um, every time you post. oh, uh, I'm sure we we have a group chat um, where we're talking to each other so I'm sure at some point we'll collaborate on you know maybe like we'll do a themed month or something like that Mm -hmm. or maybe two people will join up to cover you know like two sides of one movie or something like that, maybe like, I'm sure we'll bounce ideas off of each other. But for right now, it's mostly each person has a platform
3: to post their passion projects. And that's what I loved about it. When Kate, when Kate asked me to be a part of this was that, you know, a lot of my freelance, I I have been very lucky in that a, a lot of my freelance writing that I've done, I have been able to choose you know, for the most part, have some freedom of choice with my subjects. Um, uh, Like when I was writing for um, Filmstruck, I mean, I did have, I mean, I couldn't write about any movie, but they did have a pretty decent catalog. And, you know, my editor was pretty cool about letting me kind of push the limits of what I was allowed to write about. But it is very nice um, that essentially I can just write about whatever is you know, on my mind, um, for the month and that I don't necessarily have to fit into any specific strict parameter, um, that you would have to for a, uh, for a publication that has a very strict, uh, editorial slant.
1: So tell me about, uh, making money at this. Tell me about you're, you're doing it using Patreon, Mm -hmm. um, as basically the way you get into the site is by being a supporter tell me how you think that's going to work
3: i hope well (laughs) (laughs) i mean our launch we launched on friday april 2nd and uh i think the last i checked we have what 61 62 patrons i think
2: i think 61
3: yeah um and so just for three days i would say and on a holiday weekend and a lot of different, a lot of people, a lot of places have their cups out right now for, um, for help. And so I would say we've done very well. Um, and considering that we don't right, we just started content. So, you know, right now there are two posts up, a third will go up today. Um, and we will be posting throughout the month, but in uh, every month, but it's so amazing to have so many people sign on and believe in what we're doing, uh, right at the start. And I hope, we hope that it will continue to build as we, as we go forward. I hope it'll be great. <laughs> <laughs>
2: It already exceeded my expectations. When I, when I asked everybody to participate, I, in the back of my mind, I was like the first month, please just let everyone get more than a dollar. <laughs> like, <laughs> like don't, don't make me have to send like 70 cent payouts to everybody.
3: <laughs> but I have to say that I think what's, you know, I think that artists, writers, you know, uh, singers, anyone that's creating art, we've been so, um, especially in the era era of the internet and social media, um, and even in journalism, there's been been this, well, you know, people write and they don't get paid for it. Um, And it's just, well, I'm doing this for exposure. I mean, there are so many companies that have essentially... (laughs) Um, their contributors are writing for free and it's under the guise of, well, exposure is priceless. Well, no, it's not. (laughs) I love supporting my friends uh, by buying, you know, I've I've been a customer and a fan of Kate's work for years. Um, I've had her make custom things for me. Um, I love supporting uh, the people that I love love to enjoy their their work, their writing, their their art. So, I hope that people feel the same <laughs> about I, what I, we're I doing. Also,
2: I also think about like the Warner Archive sale, um, where uh, they announced their last sale, and everybody was stocking up. And when. Uh, everyone was sort of like terrified that like this is the end of Warner Archive and and I Mm -hmm. thought like this is sort of an example of um, why we need to support I'm like translating this into art but it also applies to small businesses that um, you need to support the things that you like while they're there because someday they're gonna say this is it we're closing and then you'll regret that you didn't support them and it goes for All of us who do creative work, um, you know, if at some point my art didn't pay my bills anymore, I would have to get a different job. I wouldn't have time anymore. And the people who enjoy what I post wouldn't be getting that anymore. I wouldn't be
3: sharing that anymore. So hopefully, hopefully um, this will I mean, what we're doing, I, I think, is very important because, as you know, Kate said, we're kind of consolidating our superpowers into one <laughs> into one thing so that yeah okay you're not
1: so you're the it, justice league are you the snyder cut or just oh
3: gosh <laughs>
1: <laughs> let's get some bros in on that
3: <laughs> you know if you say if you say um <laughs> the snyder cut like it's like it sets out a like a, a bat signal, a bat yeah. signal bat that signal. like a tra- that like attracts <laughs> Attracts a certain group, so no, um, yeah, it's. I hope that this does inspire uh, some other writers and artists in their own, whether it's classic film or you know whatever it is that they're doing. I hope it does inspire some uh, other people that are doing that to realize that their work is worth something.
1: The link for the Classic Film Collective and its Patreon campaign will be in the show post at Nitreville.com.
2: Quiet, you Popping Jay. I've no reason to letting you live either.
0: What a pleasant coincidence. I feel exactly the same way about you, Capitan. You wouldn't care to translate that feeling into action, would you? I might be tempted. If I had a weapon. Seven.
1: I'll make it short and save you fatigue A fop and a dandy popular with the ladies reveals his steel and shows his manliness in a duel as Zorro It's a neat metaphor for the star to own power whose dreamboat good looks, just ask my wife, had quickly made him 20th Century Fox's biggest male star. But the physical beauty that made him popular with women was a double-edged sword, as he had to show his masculinity to assure male audiences he was a real man. The captain's blade is not so firm. Still firm enough to run you through. Dr. Gillian Kelly, Scottish writer and lecturer on film and author of a previous book on Robert Taylor, explores Tyrone Power's glamorous looks and the ways in which they left him underrated as an actor in her new book, Tyrone Power, Gender, Genre, and Image in Classical Hollywood Cinema from Edinburgh University Press. Neither a biography nor a films of Tyrone Power book, I asked her to explain what the book is.
4: Well, it's part of the star studies um, in in film studies. So star studies is really sort of looking at individual stars and analysing parts of their constructed persona. So it's very different from a biography in that it doesn't look to discover the real person behind the image. It, it looks to explore the image. So how, how a star's image um, is portrayed on screen for audiences through characters um, and off screen in magazines and, and newspapers and things like that. So publicity. So obviously Tyrone Power was born Tyrone Power. Other stars are born with a different name. Like my first book was on Robert Taylor, who was born Spangler Arlington Brough. So, you know, he's 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 the developed person, including the name, but Tyrone Power was born Tyrone Power. But it's not the man that the book's interested in, it's it's the constructed star image that twentieth century Fox, Hollywood, and the actor created for himself over the longevity of his career.
1: Right. So not not the real person, but the real fake person.
4: Exactly, yeah. The, the, the constructed
1: persona yeah well, and the first section where you talk about um, his earliest performances and he's really constructed as an object of female desire in those films in a way that really could have hurt his career long term I think if he hadn't taken other sorts of roles but tell me about the that er, those early appearances where it focuses so much on his beauty
4: yeah, I mean, from, from almost the start, I mean, Lloyds of London was his first, like, starring role. And, you know, there's so many close-ups of him. He's got the the bright lighting that was usually used for female stars. He's got the tight historical costumes. And we see him a lot more than we see Madeline Carroll, who is, you know, the, the female star. And she was a star at the time. Um, and it really focuses on him. And also what I noticed when I was watching the films was it's not just the audience who's asked to to look at him through, you know, the the editing, the shots, the lighting, the close-ups. It's also the female characters that also look at him. So they're sort of acting as a surrogate for us to be like, you know, this is who we should desire. We should feel this way about him. And then obviously the close-ups and what's been shown to the audience Um, is sort of reinforcing that.
1: So is it the female gaze in action here?
4: Yeah. Yeah. It's like the opposite of the male gaze, because I've sort of argued against that in that, you know, if you've got a heartthrob on screen, we're going to look at them and we're going to desire them. So that's, you know, the opposite of Laura Mulvey's
1: theory of the male gaze. Yeah. Another thing that I thought was interesting about his early films is that he often is played by a child actor for the first 15 or 20 minutes, uh, and then that person turns into Tyrone power. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, like, I don't think there's any John Wayne movie that that's true of, for instance.
4: Yeah, it's interesting how many there are. And when you watch them, I watched all these films in order, so to get the idea of how audiences would see him as as they watch the films, you know, chronologically. And it was amazing how many films, you know, he starts as a child and then becomes Tyrone Power. It's very unusual for that many films for, for any actor.
1: Yeah, and it gives you a way of sort of knowing the character before he's revealed, you know, in all his perfection as Tyrone Power.
4: Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah.
1: I mean, he's he's in a number of musicals. The only one I guess that I knew about was Alexander's Ragtime Band, but he wasn't a singer. So yeah, tell me about his his career in musicals before. Yeah, the war. so
4: he only made musicals in the in the '30s, and obviously that was when musicals were big. The the sort of the first time around the the talky musicals. It was like mm-hmm. music follows the the talking. Um, so obviously warner brothers had all the busby berkeley and everything so 20th century Fox thought they would try their hand and it was the same at mgm as well they had clark gable dance they had jimmy stewart and robert taylor sing um only once <laughs> for each <laughs> of and um, once was enough but it, it does show that you know they were trying to put their big stars into their big genres at the time um and then obviously the 40s comes along musicals aren't quite as big um for a while until we get gene kelly and and people coming along in the in the 50s um and you know they they put their big stars in it whether they have the talent or not some of them they try and get to dance or sing um but he mainly plays like managers he plays um he does play a musician in alexander's ragtime band but it's to play the um, the violin, which could be faked, um, but he's the band leader, so, you know, he conducts. Um, so that's the only one he's a musician in. So he's in musicals without being the musical performer. So they pair him up with Sonia Henny, who's the, the ice skater. So she, she'll do our, our dances as a spectacle, and he sort of becomes part of the audience to watch her as well, so, so we're kind of watching what he's watching. And he's also paired up um, three times with Alice Faye, who's obviously a, a singer. So she was she was the biggest adult female star for 20th Century Fox at the time. So they paired her up with their biggest male adult star, Tyrone Power. And you've got, you know, the, the musicals. And then they, they throw in Don Amici as well as the, um, the second fiddle to, to Taylor, to Power, sorry.
1: Do you think Power is particularly comfortable in those kinds of roles?
4: I wouldn't say so. I think um, I got the idea that obviously he was a, a very professional actor and he did whatever he was asked to do. But I think he felt a lot of his early films just weren't shown what he could do. And I think until Nightmare Alley, he was like, you know, they're giving me these films. I'm making them, especially the musicals. I think that, I mean, the musicals are very much the way he he plays his his comedy roles. So it's kind of like, you know, musical comedy, really. Um, so the the musicals that he made with Sonia Haney are very much the, you know, the Battle of the Sexes, like the the comedies that he'd made with Loretta Young before that. So his character, sort of the all-American cocky um newspaper man or you know someone who's trying to get stories a manager um but he doesn't become the musical performer. so they're, they're more sort of in his comedic range.
1: Yeah, there's uh, there's one of the ones with uh, with Loretta Young that I really like and I'm I'm just spaced off the name. What's the one where Warren William is trying to get him to cheat on her and stuff like that? Daytime Wife.
4: Oh, that's with um, Linda Darnell.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Daytime Wife. I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's it's no great shakes as a movie, but it's kind of like the sort of thing that Jack Lemmon might have done twenty years later, where he's uh, this kind of cocky young guy, as you say, coming up in the corporate world and and being led into bad habits by Warren William. He learns the lesson that, uh, you know, his marriage to his wife is maybe something he should take a little more seriously by the end. Um, but I thought that one was nice in that he seems a very believable, modern American character. And Fox's response to that is to turn him into a matador in blood and sand and turn him into, you know, Zorro and a son of fury, send him on a boat. You know, anything but playing, you know, sort of... Guys as they are in in that time period
4: yeah because it's interesting he's like a he's a roofer you know he works for a, a roofing company and um he's married for the first time in a film um he didn't want to play the film opposite Linda darnell because she was only 15 at the time i mean she looks much older but she was only 15 and he was kind of like creeped out by that because <laughs> um, he was like in his 20s but yeah, yeah. it definitely works um and I write about the the scene where she um, tries to to fool him with the perfume that, he's, that his mistress uses. The um, foolish night when she douses it on the dog, and then they're having a meal and he can smell it. And it is like you know, it's it's like slapstick, uh, um, almost silent slapstick. And he does it so well. Um, and that's the thing with powers acting it's a lot of it's very subtle so it could be missed by an audience who's only seen it once in a cinema and yeah. i think maybe that's part of why he's his acting has been overlooked obviously for his for his looks um because if we're getting a you know a big stunning close-up of him sometimes it's it's hard to see the the subtle acting gestures
1: let's talk about the studio putting him in roles that both Valentino and Douglas Fairbanks had played. It's almost like trying on different outfits for him to see what fit him well.
4: Yeah, it's interesting that he he plays roles that both of them played in the silent era, because he was sort of seen as the new sound version of those stars. Um, so to, to actually play their roles and it was the same with Robert Taylor he was in Camille which Valentino had been in so they were they were kind of seen as the new talky um code version leading matinee idols to to sort of replace this this generation of the of the silence um and it to actually have the roles that they had played is is quite um, quite interesting,
1: and you know you're setting yourself up for potentially a big fall if everyone comes out of it thinking of Valentino. So
4: exactly, yeah. I think that's why I put I put in a review that, that said, you know, not to not to diss Valentino's version of the film, but Zanuck's version with with power is almost a perfect film. when he he makes Blood and Sand. So that's sort of, I guess, justifying why he was chosen and and also crediting his acting as well.
1: You talk about how his voice changed uh, from his earliest roles. I mean, he does have a few roles where he's still a teenager and it's obvious that he doesn't have control of his voice in the same way and he develops a deeper voice.
4: Yeah I mean I found that with with um, Robert Taylor as well and obviously he didn't have any stage experience really but Tyrone Power did because he he started acting with with his father Tyrone Power senior on stage um not a lot but obviously with bit parts and stuff but um yeah it's, I think it's just the nerves of the you know it's their first parts and it's quite you know the the voice is quite high pitched and it's a bit a bit sketchy in places um, and it's not till Lloyds of London he sort of starts to control it a bit more but then he has to try and do a British accent so yeah, yeah. it sort of isn't the best um, even though his father was English um, his, his his attempt at being English isn't that great and a lot of his characters are English um, and he just doesn't attempt to do them in any any further role but yeah, there's the, you know, it, it's kind of, you're aware that he's acting in the early roles. Um, like, it's time for my line, now I say this, now I do this. And even, like, um, some of his actions are very deliberate as well. They're very on the nose. Um, so in, at the end of Girl's Dormitory, when he says to Simone Simon, um, you know, would you would you like a drink, a card, blah, blah, blah. And, it, you know, he's, as he's saying that, he points to the drink. He points to this. Does you know? So it's all it's all very on the nose. Um, but a lot of early, you know, early roles for a lot of actors are like that.
1: He made these very glamorous films. You also talk about how he's used in Marie Antoinette to be the boy toy for uh, uh, Norma Shearer mm-hmm. and photographed very beautifully and all of that. At the same time, I mean, really, the same year he makes Jesse James. Which was a huge hit. I mean, the most successful western, and one of the few big star westerns of that era, when the western was kind of relegated to the bees, and it really it kicks him off in kind of an American, an American persona that's fairly rugged and manly.
4: Absolutely, yeah. Um, it was it was the end of the thirties. So it was just as, as um, Britain had entered the war, there was a bit of unrest in America. You know, are we going to go into the war? Are we not? Um, and that was kind of the, the stage when people like Tyrone Power, like Robert Taylor, were starting to move into more anti-hero roles, they got a bit tougher. Um, and it was sort of a reflection of society as well, um, as, you know, being able to, to show their toughness that they could be they could be young and, and beautiful but they could also be manly, they could be tough. Um, and it was actually the first A Western of the decade to be made by any Hollywood studio. Um, so Jesse James was the first A Western. Um, so it was made like before about the same year as Destry Rides Again and Stagecoach. Yeah. Um, so obviously they're iconic as well.
1: Yeah, and so that kind of kind of defines his career at that time uh, in both ways, that he'll be given sort of roles that stress his beauty. I mean, Blood, Blood and Sand, where he's playing a Valentino part. Mark of Zorro manages to have both of those kind of characters in it, in that he's the foppish pretend character, and really he's the manly action hero. His career does seem to sort of ping-pong between those for quite a little while.
4: It does, yeah. Um and I say in the book like he's he's wrongly remembered as a swashbuckler because he made very few films that we would actually call swashbucklers. He made far more dramas, action adventure films, um, and he made his war films, his comedies, his musicals, his westerns. But it's it's these roles that he's remembered for, particularly Zorro. Um, a lot of people have seen Zorro and maybe not seen any of his other films Um, but there were very few of these films Um, and he he did he made um, made dramas all through his career and obviously he was in Zorro and then he makes a few swashbucklers at the end of his term with 20th Century Fox which are like poor imitations so you've got like um, The Black Rose which is sort of you know, it's, it's neither here nor there. There's no real plot to it. Yeah. But it was yeah. kind of trying to, you know, maintain that glory that um, Zanek, who's was running the studio, kind of wanted for him and, and the, the persona that he wanted. But, but Power really didn't want for himself, especially as he aged, because um, he was in his 40s by that point.
1: Yeah, I mean, although you say there's relatively few of them, I mean, they were some of Fox's most expensive movies during that time, Mm -hmm. so they they they're obviously meant as a big deal and assumed to be the way that they would keep his stardom going. Um, He kind of had different views, especially after he came back from the war. You know, Razor's Edge really, you know, it's one of those movies that's kind of about itself almost, in that you see... That character is searching for a deeper meaning in life, and Tyrone Power is finding a deeper meaning in life by making a movie about searching for a deeper meaning in life. Definitely,
4: yeah, um, and it, it's one of the. It's another one that he's remembered for, um, and obviously a very strong cast, and uh, and Baxter won our um, an Oscar for it, and again lots more Oscar nominations for that film, but none for for Power, but yeah, it was definitely the. He showed a lot of um, depth to the character and then the book analyse a scene in detail and how he uses his vocal intonation and you know the tone of his voice when he's when he's telling this story about a man dying in the war. and it's a it's a small section of a, a large film and it's very understated, but just the way that he he portrays the character at that point is very telling about his own experiences in the war as well. Because he had three years of active duty, where he was actually, you know, involved in in the war and not, you know, doing a, a a film related bit of war duty.
1: It's interesting that you know I think one of the one of the things that was observed about the World War Two generation was that they had that kind of you know the thousand yard stare that there were things they just didn't want to talk about and. It's really quite early, but Razor's Edge does a good job of portraying that. He I mean he does talk about it. he talks about the the guy who died uh instead of himself. But it is kind of this, you know, I've seen things you'll never understand. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, mentality that, that was very much a part of the war and the film captures that pretty early.
4: It does. And a lot
1: of films, you know, obviously the,
4: the, the post war films we have a lot of the film Noir coming out and obviously Nightmare Alley as well Um, and a lot of the stars who wear off doing active war duty move on to these darker films like you you couldn't imagine Jimmy Stewart in the pre-war years being in the you know the dark westerns that he that he made for Antony Mann before the war but it seems fitting when he comes back the same with Robert Taylor um when he made like undercurrent and stuff you know they they become the anti heroes they become the um the the damaged men, if you like once they they come back from the war,
1: although it's interesting about Nightmare Alley that you say that he, it's not really a noir in that it doesn't have a femme fatale he's his own femme fatale in a sense you know it's his his self destruction powers the plot
4: exactly he becomes the home fatale
1: <laughs> yeah. Nightmare Alley is the sort of thing that you're sort of amazed that they would let their star do this because by the end of it, I mean, he's he's pretty derelict. And, you know, doing that to your very handsome, glamorous star just seems like maybe that image will stick in people's heads and they won't want to see him anymore.
4: Yeah, well, he um, he really pushed for that role. Um, he wanted it. He'd read the novel and he really wanted to play the role. And Zanuck had said, you know, no way, you're not You're not playing it. Um, you know, you'll do this, you'll do that, you'll, you'll do a swashbuckler. And he was like, no, I, I really want to do this. And I think because it was post-war, they allowed him to do it. I don't think they would have let him done it, do it beforehand. But what they did was they did a very limited release of it. So it didn't do as well as expected for a Tyrone Power film because it was... It was distributed to very few cinemas. Zanuck put it in and back out. So very few people actually saw it at the time. But it was just to keep her happy. Like, okay, you can do this, but no one's really going to see it.
1: Now, it's interesting. I mean, um, Zanuck really made a change in the studio during the 40s toward trying to do more serious grown-up material. You know and the most obvious examples of that are films that Joseph Mankiewicz did for the studio. Uh, yet he didn't really let power into those kind of roles. Power, pretty much, had to fight for anything meteor that he got along the way, or, and or did it independently during this time
4: definitely and his daughter talks about that in in her book Ramina Power um saying um she's she's like reprinted letters that that he wrote and that people wrote to him and, and he's always talking about how dissatisfied he was with the studio and how he wanted to leave and he even tried to negotiate with them and said look will you let me do you know one film independently a year or will you let me he really wanted to go back onto the stage and he was like, would you let me do, you know, a stage play a year? And they just would not meet his terms. Um. So obviously left in the end, but he complained about the, the sort of roles that they kept giving him and that they wouldn't let him have any sort of freedom to, to work elsewhere.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that, I mean, the Western was an outlet where a lot of stars got to do something tougher, like you mentioned Jimmy Stewart did that with his anth- films with Anthony Mann. Um, but Powers' later Westerns are not particularly good. Uh, that outlet didn't seem to present itself. Even as the studio's making things like The Gunfighter with Gregory Peck.
4: Yeah, definitely. I mean, Pony Soldier is awful. It's just, There's no story. Um, you know, it's he, he plays a Mountie at the beginning of, um, you know, the Mounties, and... Uh, he goes about wearing the the red coat, and it just there's there's no plot really. Um, it's it's not.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, as he as he aged in this time in the forties and into the fifties, he seemed to kind of relish that that he ha- had more character in his face, and he wasn't so gorgeous, in itself.
4: He was very happy with aging. Um, a lot of actors obviously aren't um but he in the, there was a quote that he said he, he wished he had a car accident so that he could bust <laughs> up his face <laughs> so that it would be taken seriously um but yeah definitely a lot of cigarettes made him look a bit older um and and by the end of his life you know he does look much older than he's he's 44 years when he does actually die but um yeah he was he was all for making himself look worse. I think that's why he really liked Nightmare Alley because he got to look, you know, really bad at the end of it. Yeah. Um And he, he was comfortable with ageing. He wasn't He wasn't vain in that way, which you would imagine someone who looked like him to be vain, but everyone was like, you know, he was beautiful but he wasn't vain with it and he wanted to help everyone out and, you know, do as much as he could for everyone. Um, but he was—he was very happy with, you know, getting getting lines on his face and, and aging.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's really a big part of his uh, character in Witness for the Prosecution is that he has kind of a spoiled playboy look to him. Definitely, yeah. Uh... He's the rare star who wanted to gain some maturity. I mean, do you think there's anyone? you know who approached his career in a comparable way or is that was that really something pretty unusual to him
4: i think i mean i think it was more like he was accepting of he was aging which unfortunately obviously he didn't he didn't get to age past 44 so we don't know what his career would be like then you have you know a romantic lead like carrie grant who only played romantic leads so he retires you know as he starts to age he got uncomfortable with being paired with women half his age um he didn't want to do charade unless audrey hepburn's character pursued him because he thought you know if if he pursued her he would look like a dirty old man
1: yeah Yeah. so
4: um he was very aware of of his limitations of being a leading man and being that sort of character um, and then you have someone like Ray Milland who um, al- although he was handsome he wasn't beautiful um, and he used to you know he had a career until he died at 79 and he sort of took on board I'm aging I'll take on character roles I've stop wearing my hair piece and he said like you know people from his generation would say to him why am I getting any roles? Why am I getting um, leading man roles? And he would say to them, well, you're you're 68, you're not 38 anymore. Like, you have to take what you're handed. And obviously he was handed some garbage later on, but he did some good well, kind of stuff as well. But it's that sort of, you know, the, the actors that accept their ageing versus the ones who don't, and then they just, you know, it looks a bit weird um, on screen. But Cary Grant obviously was like, I'm getting older I'm going to retire while I'm at the top. Whereas Raymond says, like, you know, I'll become a character actor. I'll become a, a a supporting actor. I just want to keep working.
1: Yeah, that's a good yes. point because I remember as a kid, when I started seeing young Raymond as a romantic figure, it was a bit shocking because I only knew bald Ray Raymond, who was yeah, always a, a bad guy. Like yeah.
4: Yeah. yeah, so Love Story sort of brought him back to you know the the big screen and then a lot of people be like Raymond was actually handsome when he was young yeah <laughs>
1: yeah yeah i mean who do you see anyone else whose career has been sort of managed in the same way as Tyrone Power anybody today has similarities in the way that that's worked or i suppose in some ways that studio system that you know made somebody famous as a as an object of male beauty just doesn't exist today
4: mm mm-hmm. mhm I mean comparable actors obviously would be people who started their career based on their looks and then was able to to get past that to a degree as they aged um someone like Johnny Depp someone like uh, George Clooney and Leonardo DiCaprio Brad Pitt as well um who who managed to you know, they're, they're good enough actors to be able to to play diverse characters, to have a, a long career as a leading man. But but age, I mean, they've all aged well and they've aged comfortably. And I think they, they all sort of try to buck the, you know, the, the looks early on as well. Especially Johnny Depp, I would say, you know, because he started playing all these weird characters like... Edward yeah. Scissor hands and, and stuff early on. Right. Um he was sort of uncomfortable with the, the sort of modern matinee idol. Um so he kind of went to the extreme by playing, you know, a lot of characters that that didn't look like he looked as well.
1: Well, we're about to get a new nightmare alley, so we'll see. Yeah, how that comes Bradley out. Cooper. Yeah.
4: Uh, yeah, yeah. And I think they're going for the R rating for that one, aren't they? But I think Bradley Cooper's yeah. a good choice. Um as modern actors with similar looks go. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. He, he'll you know, his his downhill path you can imagine. Uh yeah, where definitely. that'll go and uh, work reasonably well. Um I don't know, anything else that uh you wanna say of what we learned from looking at Tyrone Powers as a as a as an object of desire.
4: I think, well, I mean, the, the book sort of tries to look at the fact that his looks were so important that his acting's overlooked, because he was a very good actor, and he didn't get credit for that, and I think he still doesn't get credit for that, because he was, you know, sort of got the, the Greek god looks. Um, so, a lot of subtle acting, and a lot that can be missed on, on one viewing. Um, and that's sort of what, what the book's trying to do to sort of re- reappraise his acting as well as his obvious looks. <laughs>
1: Dr. Gillian Kelly's Tyrone Power, Gender, Genre, and Image in Classical Hollywood Cinema is out now from Edinburgh University Press. There will be a link in the show post at nitrateville.com. And now, Acting Class with Mr. Bogart.
3: I've got nobody to help me if you won't help me. Be generous, Mr. Spade. You're brave. You're strong. You can spare me some of that courage and strength, surely. Help me, Mr. Spade. I need help so badly. I've no right to ask you. I know I haven't, but I do ask you. Help me.
1: You won't need much of anybody's help. You're good. It's chiefly your eyes, I think, and that
0: throb you get in your voice when you say things like, Be generous, Mr. Spade.
3: I deserve that. But the lie was in the way I said it, not at all in what I said.
1: 1941, 80 years ago, was a very good year for Mary Astor. She became the original film noir femme fatale in The Maltese Falcon, and won a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for The Great Lie.
0: And Mary Astor, what a revelation she is. One of the
3: most attractive things about you to me has always been that you understood women. Now you're going to try and understand me, aren't you?
0: You see, she's in love with George Brent, too, and she's not going to let Betty stand in the way. And when those two get together, the sparks really fly.
1: But the 20 years in Hollywood that led her to that point were anything but magical. A Gibson girl-type beauty, forced into acting by domineering parents who would eventually sue her when she broke free of their control, she went through troubled romances that ended in death and scandal, and above all else, felt throughout her life that she was neither quite the real Lucille Langhank or the movie star Mary Astor. Illinois-based historian Kathleen Spaltrow found a treasure trove of previously unknown letters from Astor, which led to her new book, The Great Lie, The Creation of Mary Astor, which she published independently in February. I spoke with her at her home in Woodstock, Illinois, and started by asking her what got her interested in a book about Mary Astor.
0: Well, I've always been interested in Mary Astor since I saw her in the Maltese Falcon*, and then I wondered why I didn't see her. Maybe in more sound movies. Um, so I, I, I liked her performance opera as Richard O'Shaughnessy and, um, you know, saw her, I think, in a few other things, but I was sort of perplexed as to why she was always, you know, third or fourth build and not a star, a female star. And then sort of by roundabout way, I found out that she had been born in Quincy, Illinois and grew up, grew up there. Because I was doing an article about M.F.K. Fisher, who went to school in Illinois, at J- in Jacksonville, Illinois College. And I wrote an article about that, which linked M.F.K. Fisher's time in, in Illinois College to her later career as a writer at Gastronomy for Illinois Heritage, for the Illinois State Historic Society. And so in doing that research, I happened to remember that J.F. Powers, the short story writer, was born in Jacksonville. I just, I don't know why that stuck in my mind, but it did. So I did an article about him, and it turned out that he had grown up in Jacksonville, Quincy, Rockford, and Chicago before he moved to Minnesota. And just accidentally, I found out Uh, that he had been associated with Quincy, but still had Mary Astor. Not only that, but that there was a collection, a Mary Astor collection at the Quincy Public Library of letters to a friend that the friends had donated to the library, which was interesting and nobody knew they were there. So, um, I wrote another article, besides, after I did the one on Powers and the one on M.F.K. Fisher, I wrote one on Mary Astor as somebody who had grown up in Quincy. So I got the letters. They were, they were from several years of correspondence with a childhood friend when they were both middle age and elderly women. They were extremely revealing. I did that, and then eventually um, I found out that um, after I decided to do a book proposal, that the Quincy Public Library... And the Historical Society of Quincy and Adams County uh, had an extremely good local history collection that included digitized newspapers. And that there were three dailies at the time that Esther lived in Quincy and before she was born when her parents lived in Quincy. So she was born in 1906 and they moved to Chicago in 1918. But even before that, her parents, Otto and Helen, Brian Hank, and herself after 1906, uh, Lucille Langhans, we in many, many, many newspaper articles because the the um, the journalism at the time for a small city, in in as I said, it was three three daily papers was extremely specific about people's private lives to the point that if your mother-in-law was staying with you from out of town. We'd see um, newspapers will report that she was visiting and and tell everybody what you made for dessert. <laughs> I mean that was that was quite a fine too. So between the digitized papers and the uh, letters written much later, of course, to her friend Marion Bishop Kesler, there was a lot there. And so um, I guess I got more and more interested in her because then I read her memoirs and realized how abusive her early situation had been. But then I, I got to see that it was more than that. Because, I mean, you know, when you read about Mary Esther, you read about suicide attempts, you read about alcoholism, you read about old folks, old people. It all seems kind of sad, but the real story is, is actually more interesting. It, it is a, a story of a person who, who confronted her, um, demon with much courage, finally. So her victory over that was not complete, was not permanent, but it was impressive. So that's the story they tried to tell.
1: Now, you quote the famous line from Cary Grant that everyone wants to be Cary Grant, even I want to be Cary Grant. A lot of stars took that attitude about their screen personas, but it seems like Mary Astor was more than usually disconnected from her star image. Tell me about that.
0: Sure. Um, well, let's talk briefly about what the story image is. We we kind of think of of stars as, as an obvious part of movie making, but they're not. They're, the creation of the star and the story image was part of the industrialization of film. It was meant to create a system, it was part of making a system in which movie production could be a matter of fitting together, prefabricated parts that were predictable in their attraction to an audience. And so the creation of the feature film and the star actor is not an inevitability. And, for example, there isn't really a star system now in the way there was in the the golden age of Hollywood. Not to the point that you completely remake a person, that you you, um, change your physical appearance, you change their name. You lie about their lives. You uh, disguise their origins. That doesn't happen anymore. So it's an artifact of a particular time in movie production where movies were seen as products that were, uh, which, which were assemblies of prefabricated parts, including the human actors. So the story is part of that. It's a false creation that is meant to satisfy the fantasies of the audience. So the story you mentioned is a marketing tool. When you say she's disconnected from her story image, basically what it was saying is that she sees from the beginning and always saw that she was not Mary Astor. She was renamed Lucille Langham, which we renamed without her consent. Her her life is fictionalized and taken over. In fact, she didn't want to be an actress, so she was forced by her parents to do this to support the family. But she was sharp enough and relatively healthy enough to know that she was not Mary Astor. She was Lucille, but Lucille had to hide because nobody wanted Lucille. The studios didn't want Lucille. Her parents didn't want Lucille. And she had been trained to be a very acquiescent, passive young girl. Because, you know, she became a star in 1921. She was born in 1906, so she was still extremely young. But then what she finds out is that, you know, after she gets these year contracts and supports the family, is that she has no control over her life because because she doesn't get the money. She, she works the hours but her father controls her career and controls the money. And, you know, she doesn't get to do what she wants because she doesn't like film acting. She doesn't enjoy it, but she has to do it. So I think, in other words, she was always aware of all of this, so she was unhappy about it. She didn't have the chance of character at that time to resist.
1: So her first attempt to escape her parents came with a romance with John Barrymore, which is jumping from the frying pan into the fire. Tell me about that.
0: Well, in 23, Barrymore came west um, to film Bo Bremel, and he happened to see a movie magazine photograph of Astrid that had been taken by Charles Alvin, whose photographs had gotten her movie career to begin with uh, back in 1920, 21. So in 23, he sees a photograph of her. And he asks, the, the, I think it was First National, he asked First National to cast her in Bo Brummer. Uh, because he's taking Triumphs and Hamlet in New York. He's supposed to go back there in November, but he's spending the summer and most of the autumn in California uh, making a movie. He's very attracted to her, and she's still a pretty shy Um Un- certainly unconfident young girl, and she's just overwhelmed by him because he is very sympathetic. I mean, he's, just in- he's not a, um, a monster. He's a-, he's, a- he's, a- he's a sensitive man, and there is some genuine feeling for her in his um, in relationship. He wants to be a mentor to her career. He wants her to be a theater actress and play with her play with him in Shakespeare, play Lady Anne, which is the third, which is his previous plan in New York before Hamlet. He wants her to play Ophelia to his Hamlet. And, you know, he, he wants to seduce her, and he does. Um, she fell in love with him deeply to the point that she never really gets over it. Even when she's an old woman, she's still mad that she lost him. Um... And so, it was, in in some ways, a very unfortunate relationship for her, from my point of view, because I don't think it was, you know, a healthy relationship between a man who was in his mid-40s and a teenager, for one thing. I mean, the balance of power was very unequal. But also, just, she was already being exploited by her parents, and there is an element of exploitation in this relationship, too. So, I don't think it was very good for her. But definitely... She became deeply imprinted with his, his um, influence, and she never got over everything. She grieved about it for the rest of her life.
1: Next, she was married to a promising director named Hawks, not Howard, but his brother Kenneth, who we don't know about because he died in an aerial accident while shooting a movie. Tell me about that.
0: Uh, he died when he, as the director of uh, uh, Such Men Are Dangerous, um, he had finished the scenes that, that, uh, two, uh, planes were shooting a third plane. Uh, I think there's supposed to be a parachute jump and they were shooting close. One plane was shooting close ups and the other plane was shooting, um, other shots. And, um, the two planes that were filming collided each other, probably because the sun, um, blinded the pilot of one of them. Ten men were killed, including Hawks. So he was up there. Unfortunately, um, he had already finished shooting the scene, but he was a very um, painstaking man, and he felt that it needed to be better than it was. So he was killed. They had been married only a brief time. Of all of her husbands, Ken Hawks seems to have really loved her for herself. And if he had lived, her story probably would have been somewhat different in that um, her recovery from abuse probably would have occurred much earlier. He helped her disentangle herself from her father as her manager, and he was very emotionally supportive. They were friends more than uh, anything else. Um, It did not seem to be a highly um, sexual marriage. Um, She talks about their sexual difficulties. it was not like Barrymore at all. She was still very, very young. Uh, she was probably no more than about twenty-five, when she
1: was good. up. Yeah, I always think it's interesting that she was almost the same age as Betty Davis, yet her career had already been going for a decade before Davis ever came to Hollywood.
0: Well, you know that those two women became good friends um, around the time of, of God's Word. Davis reached out to to after and one-third of her career in a Davis film. She was, of course, a much bigger star and sound film than Astor was. And they made The Great Lie together, but much later they made Astor's last film together, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. The Davis and our friendship is important because Davis respected Astor, and Astor respected Davis. Davis, was, as you know, was somebody for whom being a good actress was far more important than being a movie star. And the fact that Davis and Astrid liked each other so much, got along so well, and respected each other so much, says a lot about both of them.
1: Which is not usually how we think about Davis and how she felt about her female co-stars.
0: Astrid didn't like the story image. She didn't. She thought the whole star thing, stardom thing was baloney. It's her sort to of Davis. So, what Astrid was doing was working her way out of being a silent film movie star and a passive movie star in early sound film who wasn't trying very hard, to started to take an interest in acting, even though she film acting, even though she didn't like it, and do a better job. She was doing that gradually. Because her first significant role is really 15 years after she became a star in 1936 in Dodgeworth. And she was a very, very good film actress, but not for a long time because of border. But she eventually was challenged to be a better film actress. And what she really did, besides taking it more seriously and, and trying to do a better job, she applied those skills to her much preferred work in radio, live television and live theater, which she very much preferred to making movies because, because it was a more challenging um, job of acting. So what I'm trying to say is that there was an authenticity in Esther As- that wanted to get expressed. It was getting it expressed. You're doing a better job after many years of just sort of plodding along Um as being a somewhat ornamental player in um, early sound to being a good actress in film and then uh, transferring that to radio, TV, live TV, and um,
1: stage. Now, before she really came into her own as an actress, she had a famous scandal involving her next husband, Dr. Franklin Thorpe. Tell me about that.
0: Sure, to briefly recap that, after uh, Ken Hawks was killed, she rejected a marriage proposal from Ronald Coleman, who would have made a good husband for her, but she went, naturally she wasn't attracted to him. She was an, instead attracted to somebody who was a kind of just who was treating her uh, for ailments after Ken Hawks died. Uh, he was already a nun to her. She was already married by Florida common law to somebody else, but he didn't tell her that. So the marriage was bigamous. She didn't know that for a long time. And they, so Franklin Thorpe and uh, Mary Astor were married and they had a daughter, but they were not happy together. And eventually, both of them dealt with their incompatibility by having affairs, including a famous affair she had with George S. Kaufman in New York. Thorpe blackmailed Astor into giving up custody of their daughter. Uh, by threatening her with her diary, which she had recorded some of her disdain for him and her affairs with other men, including Crawford, He intimidated her into acquiescing. The lawyer told her not to accept the terms of the arrangement uh, that was proposed for child custody, but she did. But she, she was scared of him. But then um, she got angry and to her friend, Ann Harding, with whom she had acted in holiday. And Ann Harding referred her to an attorney would help Astor regain child custody. An enemy she had made uh, earlier, when she was married to Ken Hawkes, was afraid that he was mentioned in the diary. Um, she had had an affair with one of her, one of her friends. And so he... Forged diary pages that were highly scandalous and sent them to the studio heads who met all together in Bowen's um, office with Esther there and her attorney there to try to pressure her into dropping the suit because they were convinced by the forgeries that uh, she had walked um, school cards about the sexual prowess of half of Hollywood's real actors. This was not true. And she said it wasn't true, but they didn't believe her, and they pressured her to give up the suit because they were afraid of the of the uh, blowback, of the public, or the no other stories. So she said no, she would not give up the suit. And Sam Goldwyn at that point, decided to support her and said, "This is good. A mother fighting for her child. This is good publicity." Which turned out to be the case. Anyway. So, but, but, but. Um, the forgeries were then released to the newspapers, which had a field day with them, because the enemy was still trying to get her to back out of her child custody case, so that the real diary would not be revealed. And she was very much, even though she had defied the studio heads and said she would not back down with her case, you know, it could have been it could have been the end of her career, of course. But it wasn't. It was interesting that the American public, that everybody had expected to scorn her uh, as this a hussy, actually applauded her when she when when her, she first appears in God's Word, which was filming at the same time as the trial. They applauded her when she came on screen, and so it didn't hurt her career at all. In fact, in some ways, as I argue in the book, it made her casting more interesting it changed her story image because now she was kind of a logically seen both as a lady, which is her previous image, she is a lady, and as a woman who had these concealed depths of depravity. I think it's sort of it was the source of of her casting and of her a continued attraction.
1: Well, it's interesting that Goldwyn got it right. I mean, who would better understand the appeal of a woman who stands up for her kid than the guy who made Stella Dallas?
0: <laughs> well, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the other the other studio heads, I think Mayer was there and Thornburg. Um, I've forgotten who else, but it's in the book. Uh, they were terrified of what might happen uh, if this uh, trial continued, what might come out. Because they didn't believe her. They, they thought that the... The Ford's diary entries were accurate.
1: Now, at this point, she sort of switches toward character roles, which would include The Maltese Falcon and The Great Lie, and also things like The Palm Beach Story and Mimi in St. Louis. Tell me about that phase of her career.
0: She had chosen to be a feature player because it was safer not to have to carry a movie as uh, the female star uh, and be blamed if it failed. But to be a supporting uh, actress, to be a character actor, to be a feature player was safer. So that was a career decision she had already made. And so she, with the fact that she was cast in The Maltese Falcon, is probably like an accident because we look back at The Falcon and we say, well, this was a wonderful film, which it is, of course. I love The Maltese Falcon. But at the time, I think it was pretty much seen as a, by Warner Brothers as a B movie project in which they were casting um, a boy who was just making his name, John Houston for whom it was his first film that he directed, and some relatively unknown other character actors like Green Street and Louie and Elisha Cook and and uh, Gail Patrick. So I don't think I think the fact that Astor is a leading lady in is actually an anomaly. I think she was cast of the fact that she was a feature player because it was seen as a B-movie. And nobody expected it to become an instant classic. You can see that, that she's cast, even though she's a leading lady, she's really cast as a character actress. They want, Bogart and Houston both wanted her to appear in the film. And she had a great time. She liked the film. She liked, I think it was, it was one of the few films, I believe, that was, was filmed uh, in sequence, too which she greatly vastly preferred. Anyway, with regard to The Great Lie, she had a a spell of unemployment and and she was asked to appear in that. Uh, Of course, she was cast as a supporting actress to Ben Davis and George Brent. And the original story was one that was quite different from the film that we have. Davis was very angry at the screenplay that she was reading and asked her said that she knew that Davis was in a really foul mood for days. And then Davis comes up to him uh, one day and she says, Aster, we've got to do something about this piece of junk that we have, that I have here. So the two women basically rewrote the screenplay. And they build up Aster's character, Sandra, to be much more than she was initially. Um, and the film really became about the relationship between the two women much more than between Betty Davis' character and George Brent's character. So it's a, it's a competition for rather a worthy male object, <laughs> um, which is ferocious. I mean, as I said in the book, it's really funny to me that in the first scene in which um, Astor approaches Davis in person, by metaphor, is she looks like a gladiator entering the Coliseum. It's a ferocious battle. But what's also funny about it to me is that these two women in real life actually liked each other very much. They respected each other very, very much. And the film, of course, you know, is, is um, an embodiment of stereotypes. that women don't like each other, that they're obsessed with children and, and men. And uh, they'll do anything to destroy each other. And that's exactly what happens, of course, in the actual plot. But in real life, it couldn't have been
1: more different. So Astor's career continues on through the 40s and into the 50s. But all through this time, she's basically a functioning alcoholic. And it's at this time that she goes to AA and converts to Catholicism and basically embarks on a new career as a writer. So tell me about how that happened.
0: Well, she converted earlier. She converted uh, in the early 30s to Roman Catholicism, but she had let it lapse. And what happened was she, she sort of hit bottom because for several reasons. One was her career was in the late 40s was entering a period in which she was cast mostly as a mother, which she hated. think at the time, keep in mind, in, say in 1946, she's only 40 years old. Uh, and still a beautiful woman, but she's being treated as a sexless maternal object. Well, mothers, you know, as I, I joke in my book, all mothers are virgin mothers. You know, mother mother as, a, as an asexual person is how she's being cast for the most part. And she absolutely hated that, depressed her. Uh, she was unhappily married again, husband's number three and four. Your husband, number four, and she drank a lot. She had, always had money problems because she was never um, educated about how to handle money. Her father had taken about, she said, about half a million dollars in the 20s uh, and gave her an allowance after she ran away. She said, tells a story, I think, in my story. She, after the Barrymore thing, after she lost Barrymore, mostly because she was under her father's thumb, she rebelled and, um, she climbed out of the bedroom window and down a tree and ran away. Um, she came back the next day, her father was somewhat cowed by this and he condescended to give her an allowance of $5 a week. She was making a $1,000. This is after she ran away. So she had never been allowed or trained to handle money. And she had tended to delegate this to her husband and she says, all of my marriages were financial disasters. So it's not only that she's depressed in the late 40s by um, her casting. She has money problems. She's an alcoholic. She's not happy in her marriages. And um, she's in bad shape. She doesn't see a way out. She's drinking far too much. So at this point, she's beginning to do live television, which she loved. It's happened during radio. So, and she loved that too. So, she was making some healthy moves towards a more fulfilling life. But as she, she said, I hated myself. So, uh, she happened to go uh, to see a therapist who had been psychoanalytically trained in Europe. He was a European, he was, he was named Peter Sicklick, he was also a priest. And he was very good for her because he understood that she had been exploited by her parents, and he, and he helped her explore her self-hatred and open herself up to the possibility that she was misconduct in her life. But she had no water. She had no um, secure sense of value. She didn't know who to trust. She had been raised by untrustworthy people. She had been exploited financially. Uh, she had married men who were not really good husbands. She was confused about people. And so Father Sicklick was very good for her because he was a benign presence in her life that helped her to see that she was conducting her life completely wrong and that she had not taken responsibility for her life, Uh, that she had to stop drinking and uh, confront the fact that her parents had not left her. He said... To her at some point. Maybe they didn't know how to love. Maybe they weren't capable of it. And so he gave her some very clear parameters. And she decided herself, uh, she was, it's a parallel process. It didn't have anything directly to do with him. But she decided herself to go back to uh, being a practicing Roman Catholic. And so that helped her too, because I think it was really the only thing that ever really helped her, besides Father Cyclic's. guidance, becoming religious and finding a religion that was very clear about obligations to other people. It helped her get a sense of boundaries and um, self-definition because she was very confused about, about all of these things. She was confused about what love is. So that's what happened. She climbed out of it and what Father Cyclic had encouraged her to write out an account of her life that it would help him conduct her therapy. And so that became the basis of her first memoir, My Story. And then um, she started writing novels, and she wrote some very good novels. My argument is that Mary Astor is not an actress who became a writer and that life as a hobby. She was always a writer. She was misdirected into asking by other people's need to exploit her beauty and her star image to support them. But there's a writer who became an actress and then found the writing found the writing later in life to be her preferred creative endeavor. So, um, what I see happening here is is having the strength to fail. To, uh, to do something that probably everybody would say her, well, you know, oh, I mean, you're not going to work or nobody's going to take you seriously, you're an actress. You know, people tend to have very low expectations of actors doing other things. She had the courage to fail. And, and she worked hard on her writing and that was all she wanted to do after a while. She didn't want to act anymore, though she did appear in one final film, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, again with Betty Davis partly for sentimental reasons. Um, and she was pleased to report that uh, Davis had the day off, the day that asked to be shooting her scenes. And it uh, was quite a week away. It was not a short commute. But Davis um, got to where they were filming, um, talked to her, talked her, listened to her Southern accent, and said to the director, watch her, let her go, you might learn something. So you know that she showed respect, and and, and um uh, that was Astor's last uh, Stonewall as as um, the widow of uh, the man who was murdered by having his hands and head chopped off, I believe. I can't remember his name.
1: It's, it's Bruce Stern, and Astor's also the killer, isn't she?
0: She's the murderer. Yeah. Uh, Nobody knows this except except whenever it's the Havilands. Uh, malignant cousin saw Esther leave the scene of the of the crime, and has been blackmailing her all these years. So you find that at the end, but but Astrid scenes, her actual scenes, are at the beginning of the film, because she's the widow of this I man. I can't remember his name right now. She's the widow of uh, Charlotte's lover, that his But I mean, it's kind of improbable that somebody would pocket somebody else and got his head in his hand but it, it's in probability it doesn't have much to do with the film but it's fun to watch
1: how do you like it oh it's marvelous
0: and you haven't seen anything yet the real surprises are coming
1: The Great Lie, The Creation of Mary Astor by Kathleen Spaltrow is available now. Links will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Kate Gabriel, Jill Blake, Dr. Jillian Kelly, and Kathleen Spaltrow. Music is by Kevin McLeod and Brett Von Donsel. And thank you for never missing an episode, you wild, impetuous creature, you. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And we'd be especially touched if you left us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts. Thanks.
0: Nothing is permanent in this world except Roosevelt, dear.